you know, with our sermon, if you turn in your Bible, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes um, chapter 2. And what we're going to talk about this morning is much of our lives are spent um, in search of the good life. And we might talk about or define the good life as thinking about a life that works, you know, a life that is enjoyable, or maybe the ideal life that you're, that you're longing for, that you wish that you could have. And all of us have a different definition or a different vision of what we think the good life is. Some might tell you that the good life is found in having financial freedom, you know, being able to not just pay your bills, but being able to go and, and do things and to not have any cares. Some would say the good life is found in yourself. You know, maybe you can gain enough spiritual wisdom or insight or enough intestinal fortitude. Then you can have the good life just meeting your own needs. Or some would even tell you the good life can be found in Nebraska. Right? You can see that. It's the unofficial slogan of this state. If you drive up north, you'll see a big green sign that'll tell you, Welcome to the good life. And being in Nebraska, I'm very familiar with that. You know, you made it if you got there. That's where it is. The problem is that there's lots of different options that people have over what the good life is. Everything from Nebraska to fame, but where really can the good life be found? As Christians, we might be tempted to say or might believe, oh, we know we have the right vision of the good life is, but we too need to have our vision checked. I think far too often our version of the good life simply just has some Christianese slapped on top of it. It might not actually be very biblical. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to try and look at what is the true location of the good life? Where can it be found? In Ecclesiastes chapter 2 um, Solomon, our, our author of Ecclesiastes, he spends this detailing his search for the good life and trying to find it. And originally this was going to be three different sermons as we went through this chapter, but I'm doing it all together in one this morning. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to see three different places that the good life cannot be found. And then finally we'll see where it can be. Um, so if you have your Bibles and if you are able, if you would stand with me um, for the reading of God's Word from Ecclesiastes chapter 2 says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, and my heart still guided me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. Made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who were before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man." So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my heart eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure, and my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. But then I considered all that my hands had done, the toil that I expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can man do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. And I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there's more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. 
When I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For as the wise of, of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing then in the days to come, all will have long, been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all that I've toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is vanity and a great evil. What is man from all the toil and the strivings of the heart from which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation, and even as night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I, I ask that you would come and be in this place this morning. Lord, we, we confess the, the many times that we ignore your word. Lord, we confess that this week we have, there are days, there are moments that when we have been convicted and thought we should have read your word and did not. We confess that there are times that we have read your word and then been bored by it. Confess there's been times we've read your word and then we've gone on and not obeyed it. We've delighted elsewhere. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us and we ask that that would not be true this morning. Lord, would we not just hear your word, would we not just be entertained or find enjoyment, but would we have an encounter with the living God through your words? Would you change us? Would you let us behold you? And would we leave this place being more like Jesus? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Would you be seated? So we're going to look at a couple different places where you can't find the good life. So the first place, if you're taking notes in your bulletin where the good life is not, is that the good life cannot be found in hedonism. Um, the good life cannot be found in hedonism. So hedonism really is the philosophy that believes the good life is found in pleasure. Right? So doing things that are fun and that feel good and makes you happy. If you could just spend your whole life being happy, that would be a good life. Someone might not call it hedonism, but they might embrace it through other ways. So Solomon, he decides he's going to embrace it. In verse 1, he says, I said to my heart, come now, I'm going to test you with pleasure and enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. He decides he's going to try and find the good life in doing whatever it is that makes him happy. But he spoils the ending right away to tell us it's not going to work. And then he's going to go through telling us all the different things he tried that didn't work. He gives us this big list. First, he just tried humor and laughter. He thinks, well, maybe if I'm laughing a lot, that's got to be a good life, right? Verse 2, I said, of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Really doesn't last very long. It doesn't even last to the end of that verse. You know, we don't know what he did. Maybe he hired a bunch of comedians or court jesters, but it didn't work. And if you study, if you listen to enough comedians closely, you'll discover large numbers of them will tell you they are deeply depressed. Even though they might laugh a lot, they 
can't find meaning there. So he goes on to find the good life somewhere else. Verse 3, he tries to find it in substances like alcohol. I searched my heart, how to cheer my body with wine, and my heart still guided me with wisdom. And how to hold, lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven in their few days under the sun. All this stuff after, he's kind of careful to note here. He's not just descending into a kind of uncontrolled alcoholism or addiction. He still has all of his wisdom, all of his wits are with him. But he wants to see if maybe he just needs to drink a little more and laugh. Maybe that will help. But all, because after all, that's what substances do. They promise to give our life meaning or to make, at least make it more bearable. But it doesn't last and it doesn't work. He always needs another glass of wine and the next glass doesn't bring any more joy than the last one did. So verse 4, he decides, well, maybe I'll find pleasure and I'll find it in accomplishing stuff. Instead of just drinking, I'll be productive. I'll get out there. I'll do something. So I have something to show for my life. I made great works. In verse 4, I built houses and I planted vineyards for myself. So he starts making impressive things. He builds the kind of buildings that amaze and would draw tourists. You'd go see these if you were on vacation. But these aren't buildings for other people to use. You, you notice is they're all just for himself. Me or our, mine, kind of repeats there. He, for they're just for himself, his own pleasure, just for the joy of creating. Presumably that vineyard is so he can make himself the best wine to drink of. He's probably becoming an expert at this point. But it's not just buildings and wineries. Look what else he builds. In verse 5, I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest and growing trees. He builds the most beautiful garden that he can imagine and that money can buy. Does that remind you of somewhere? Ultimately, he's really kind of trying to recreate that garden of Eden once again. He's trying to get utopia as best as he can do it. And it's not just because the word garden is mentioned there twice. It also it mentions trees and that phrase, all kinds of fruit trees. If you go back to Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, it'll make a point of describing as Eden and that garden having every kind of tree and every kind of tree that had fruit with seeds in it. So it seems as if he's intentionally, the revival is trying to point that out to us. He is searching, he is trying to recover what was lost in the garden. But it fails. He builds the most beautiful thing he can imagine, fields of flowers and forests of trees. He gets to go out every day and just soak that up. It's his backyard. But it's not the good life. Tries to accumulate wealth. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. Like most ancient kings, he's got plenty of slaves. Do all of his bidding, he doesn't have to work himself. Anything he imagines, anything he wants to accomplish, he's got plenty of people that will do it for him. His every desire, his every demand can be met by a snap of his fingers. But his wealth doesn't stop there either. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. He's got more cattle and animals than anyone who's ever lived in his country. This is the time and period of life where that's how you measured wealth. How many heads of cattle do you got? And he's got more than anyone. But not just that, he's got wealth the other ways we count it too. In verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. It's not just found in animals, it's found in money. He's got a big old pile of gold. He's got a massive treasure hoard, kind of like the dragon smog or Scrooge McDuck or anyone else you want to put in there. He's got more than all of them. In verse 8, it doesn't satisfy, so he spends that money. He says, I got some singers, both men and women. He has, he's hired people to sing music for him wherever he wants. Remember, this is, you know, 10th, 9th century. This is 
a while ago. He didn't have an iPod, didn't have a record player, didn't have a radio he could turn on. You had to have people that you could go and listen to sing. So he hires them. They follow him around, and they'll sing whatever he wants, whenever he wants. He can make them learn songs or write me a new song every day. He's always got the best music, but it doesn't work. So he hires people for other purposes as well. It says, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. It's pretty clear there Solomon is talking about sexual pleasures. He's really only thinking about women in terms of sexual objects. The, the Hebrew word that's used there is actually um, intentionally vulgar or objectifying. It's not actually concubine. So he's losing himself and having as much sex as he wants with as many women as he wants. Which people still kind of do this today, or one way we do this today is through pornography. It makes it more efficient and faster than ever to just objectify other people for your own pleasure. But it's no more satisfying today than it was back then. And the result, verse 9, I became great. I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, but my wisdom remained with me. He's not being a fool. Okay, this isn't just a, a dope who's just going crazy with all of his money wasting it. He, he still is very smart and intentional, and he's looking for something. He's desperately trying to find satisfaction in the good life. He's the greatest man Israel's had yet, and yet, verse 10, he tells us, All that my eyes desired, I didn't keep from them. I didn't keep my heart any pleasure. My pleasure, or my heart found pleasure in all of my toil, and that was my reward. He did whatever he wanted. That's the dream, right? That our every need gets to be satisfied. That everything we want to do, we get to do. It's a dream for many. He, he buys anything he wants, has sex with anyone he wants, chases all of his desires. He is more true to himself than anyone who has ever lived, has ever got to be. And what is the result of all of that? Toil and vanity. It doesn't satisfy. And if you notice, too, at all of this, it doesn't seem like he's just doing these things one at a time. It's not like he says, okay, I'm going to laugh a lot now, and okay, that didn't work. Now I'm just going to drink a lot. Ah, that didn't work. Now I'm going to buy a lot. No, all of these things are all at once. He's doing all of it. Every single pleasure at all times, he's just in drinking and enjoying, fully immersing himself in it. And the result of it's in verse 11, considered all my hands had done, the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity. It was a vapor. It was meaningless. It was a striving after the wind. There's nothing to be gained under the sun. It's, the result is this isn't the good life and it doesn't satisfy. That word vapor appears again. It's usually used to describe the vaporousness, the meaninglessness of idols in other passages of the Bible. When it describes, oh, those idols are, are, are vapor, are meaningless, they're useless. It's that same word that he's using here. And it's not that idols, it's not that these pleasures, it's not that they didn't feel good, it's not that they weren't nice, but it's, that they, it's not that they didn't provide any meaning, but it's their meaning, their satisfaction doesn't last. It fades just like the wind. You can't find the good life in, in hedonism or pleasure. So hedonism fails. That's the first one. Where else does he go look? Point number two is that the good life can't just be found in spirituality. The good life can't just be found in spirituality or a vague spirituality. So throughout this, this section, starting in verse 12, kind of through 18, he describes his journey to describe wisdom. And I, I think maybe a helpful way for us to think about this today is to think about wisdom in terms of kind of a generic spirituality, because that's the way that our world and our culture thinks about it, right? We're not necessarily concerned with wisdom today primarily, but people do really long for a more vague spiritualness, 
We want a little bit of every religion that we can find, something that works, something that maybe is a little transcendent or outside of myself. They want to be a little bit enlightened. And so we still are kind of seeking the good life through wisdom like Solomon does here, but we wouldn't call it that anymore. We just, we change the name of it. And so people might say, you know, we, well, we can find the good life in being a really spiritual person. And then the way we define that would be different for everyone. But verse 12, he says, I consider to turn wisdom and madness and folly. He's going to find the good life through here. And I, since I think this is Solomon, it means he's already got more wisdom, more spirituality than any of us or any of us after us or before us. So I think he'd be a good guy to tell us if this is going to work or not. All right? And he thinks that it should work really good. Verse 12, verse 12 is kind of strange. It says, for what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Um, honestly, this verse confuses me a little bit. My, my best shot at it, my best interpretation is I think that he's saying that, well, since there's nothing new under the sun, since all my other paths have failed and every king's already kind of done what I've tried to do, you know, may, I might as well try wisdom. Maybe, let me see if that one works. That's what I think that verse is saying. And because then in verse 13, he says, that, Well, then I saw there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, just like there's more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head. That's probably a good thing to have. Uh, but the fool walks in darkness, saying, Well, we all know it's better to be wise than to be a dummy. Being spiritually aware, being a really conscious person is better than just being ignorant and knowing nothing. Uses the example of being able to see. All right, the wisdom and spirituality, they're like lights. They make walking in a dark world easier. But the person without wisdom or the fool is somebody who's trying to walk with no eyes in the darkness. They're, they're going to stumble. They're going to walk into some things. But the rest of the verse, he says, And yet I perceived the same event happens to all of them. That same event is death. So we're gonna talk, we've already talked about it. We'll continue to talk about so much through this book. The problem is that the wise spiritual person dies just like the fool. The wisest person who's ever lived is going to end up in the same place as the dumbest person who ever lived. None of us will escape the grave. You could always make wise decisions. You could go to the best schools, graduate top of your class. You could publish books. You could be a world-renowned expert on wisdom or spirituality. You could have every person in Hollywood or all over calling to come and sit at your feet and wanting to learn from you and how wise you are, and yet you could still get hit by a drunk driver and die. You could still have cancer or a heart attack or a stroke. Death still comes for every single one of us. There is no way to escape it on this life. In verse 15, he says to himself, well, if what happens to the fool is going to happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said to my heart, this also is vanity. See, this leads him to noticing the good life really isn't found here. All of his wisdom, all of his spirituality, it cannot save him from death. And it's not just that it can't keep him alive. It's that it doesn't provide any lasting value. It doesn't provide any remembrance. 16, for the, the, as the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. He is going to be forgotten and passed over and lost to the annals of history where people will mispronounce his name. Just like every fool around him. All of us will be forgotten one day. And it makes him wonder, what's the point? In verse 17, so I hated life. Because what's being done under the sun was grievous to me. All is vanity and a striving after the wind. This partially, it sounds like depression. 
But, but I don't think this is just a personal depression about how sad life really is. It's not just him saying, oh, I hate my life with teenaged angst. It's deeper than that. I, I think this is also a hatred for life as it is. Not just his own life, but the fact of existence and how it works, that he hates, that man, you can't find a good life anywhere. No matter what you do, you're still going to die and be forgotten, and that's it. And it might be a long time, it might not be a long time. It doesn't seem like we make that big of a difference. None of this can possibly save us. And he doesn't mean just eternally, he means presently. You can have all the wisdom of Dalai Lama and Buddha. You can be the most enlightened. You can have the most enlightened perspective on life. You can embrace carpe diem and gratitude, but it will not keep the suffering and pain and hardship of life away from you. It will still find you. It will not save you from death. Good life can't be found in wisdom or spirituality. Where does he turn next? Well, the last place he turns, point number three, says the good life can't be found in materialism or productivity. The good life can't be found in materialism or productivity. So and try, after trying, you know, the high-minded spiritual wisdom stuff, he comes back down to earth. Well, maybe, maybe get more practical. Maybe that'll be it. So he, first he tries to find the good life in accomplishing things and doing something. And I think we find both productivity and materialism here as visions of the good life he pursues in 18. But he, he lets us know again, quick, I hated all the toil for which I toiled under the sun. See, and I got to leave it to the man who comes after me. And who knows whether he's going to be a wise or a fool. He hates his own toil as his work. He's asking, man, why am I working so hard? Why, why am I killing myself trying to accomplish so much when all that's going to happen is all of my hard work, all of the stuff I did is just going to go on to somebody else and they might mess it all up. They might squander it. They might not appreciate it. Yet this person, they'll be master for which all I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is vanity. All that work being built up to get things and accomplish and to build a business or a company, it just passes on and goes away. It's like, you know, that, that car that you worked your whole life for, maybe restored and put all these decades of wharf in and gr took great care of, of, goes to a grandkid who never changes the oil and wrecks it and just ruins it. It's vanity. Vaporous and meaningless. Because sometimes, it continues, a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill can leave everything to be enjoyed by somebody who doesn't toil for it vanity and evil. He, he's repeating himself here again because it's just so frustrating, not because he's a bad writer. He says, everything that you gain, everything that you get, you don't, you don't get to keep it. It's all going to pass on. You know, if you want to recognize the foolishness um, of amassing great possessions, just go to, you know, one of the green girls' estate sales. Okay, just walk through a house after somebody's passed on and look, it's just a bunch of junk. Somebody thought it was really meaningful, maybe it was really important to them, and they worked really hard their whole life to have it, and here it is, and now it's, if you wait a couple more days, it's going to be 70% off. If you wait even longer, it's just going to end up in the trash and go to a dump. Even if you're buried with all your stuff, like an ancient pharaoh in a pyramid, right? To, here you go, you got all of your things, and it's there, you're still dead, and some years later, someone's going to dig it up and steal it. Verse 22, what is a man from all the toil and the striving of the heart from which he toils under the sun? Continues in 23, for all of his days are full of sorrow and even his work is a vexation. Even the nights his heart doesn't rest. This also is a vanity. The problem isn't just with amassing things. It's also with thinking that if we're just productive enough, if we do something, that'll make us meaning. 
a life filled just with hard work and workaholism can't sustain you either. Right? There's a popular lie we tell too. Hey, find something you love. You'll never work a day in your life. Part of that lie is, well, the good life, it's found in meaningful work. Do something that, that maybe helps bring, you know, nourish or flourishing to humankind and makes the world a better place and is really good or fulfills your own desires. But if you just, it tells you, hey, if you got the right occupation, then you're not going to suffer as much in life. It's going to be easy and great. Solomon's telling you, hey, that's not true. There's still going to be days that really stink. Still going to be days that are really hard that you don't want to go to the office. There's still going to be somebody you got to work with that you just can't stand. Your days will still be filled with sorrow, and then one day your work is actually going to end up becoming an enemy. You won't. There will be moments you won't be able to sleep at night. You'll no longer be able to rest. I don't think this is just talking about the, the stresses of work. I think this is also the idea. There are some who are unable to rest because you always need to be doing something. You always have to accomplish something or be productive today. To not be productive makes you feel like you've just wasted everything. Now, I'm not saying that is just inherently sinful or wrong, but you might want to examine your heart if that's you. Because you might subtly believe subconsciously that the good life is found in accomplishing something. Or you might believe that my worth as a human being is found not in the fact that God made me and loves me and I am his child, but it is found is that I have to do something. I need to accomplish something today, and then I will have worth. Really, my worth is in myself and what I do. The problem is you're never going to do enough. You can never be productive enough to fix your heart. You can never be productive or accomplish enough or get enough things to find the good life and be truly and lastingly satisfied. It's vanity and vaporous. Like trying to catch the wind with a rake and put it in your pocket. Verse 20, so I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all my toils of labors under the sun. The work and possessions that didn't lead to the good life, it just led to more despair and suffering. You know, I learned this week the official slogan of the state of Oklahoma, you can correct me if I pronounce this wrong later, is labor omnia vincit, or work conquers all. It's a good slogan. It fits, right? You know, hard work. If you work hard, you can do anything. Accomplish anything through hard work. The problem is that hard work won't lead you to the good life either, and that's not true. Hard work's good. It's better than no work. But as Solomon will tell you, well, at the end of it, you're still going to die. Hard work doesn't conquer all. It can't conquer death. It still comes. But there is someone who has conquered death. There is someone who does conquer all. And that person is where we can finally find the good life. Point number four. It's just simply, if you haven't guessed it already, the good life is found in Jesus. And the good life can only be found in Jesus. You cannot find it anywhere else. It will not work. It will not satisfy. It might work for a moment, but ultimately you will come like Solomon and say, vanity, vanity. And Solomon, the preacher, he's tried to find the good life everywhere he can think of, but it's left him empty. And the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a bit of an idol buster for us. It will continually pop up your idols or things that you put value in and worth and tell you, hey, that's just meaningless and vapor. It doesn't really work. That's not as important as you think it is. It's going to fade. So looking for the good life or visions of the good life, that may just be another way for you to think about idolatry or these are things that we can make idols out of. And it's not just that we worship these things. 
But it's that we look to them thinking that they can give us meaning, that they can make our lives what we dream, they can, they can make everything better. And Ecclesiastes wants us to see this whole book, we'll do it over and over and over again, to say that anything you look to outside of Jesus will fail you. It will not work. It will not satisfy. It will not last. And when you die, you will be disappointed. But that's what you put your hope in. Verse 24, he tells us, You know, there's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. And to say, hold up, wait a second, what did he say? Um, that doesn't make sense. He just, did he just say eating and drinking and toil should bring enjoyment? I thought he just talked about how none of that worked. Just spent a whole chapter telling us why that didn't work. Well, this actually, these couple of verses here, it's a repeated theme in Ecclesiastes. There's going to be about six more times this, a similar phrase to this is going to come back up again. It's going to say something, you're like, well, we're going to die, so let's just enjoy life. Now, this isn't just a dead poet society, you know, carpe diem, let's, let's seize the day. You know, it's not just about living each day with gratitude and a smile. Look at the end of the verse 2. He says, this also I saw is from the hand of God. He's recognizing all of these things, all of this stuff he's been chasing, he's been holding on to, that they're gifts. That God made food and wine and work. He made everything beautiful and wonderful in life. And they're gifts for us to enjoy. They're, they're glimpses of Eden and glimpses of, of life as it should be before sin came into the world. Excuse me, world. But the problem comes when we start to think that these gifts are more significant than the giver, that maybe the gifts can give us this good life. When we take these finite gifts and we turn them into idols to worship, and that is when we fail. That's when they fall. He's not calling for us to seek the good life down here, but he's calling us, hey, well, just recognize that those are good things, but ultimately they're from God. They're supposed to point you somewhere else. Look again at verse 25. This is kind of key to helping understand it. He says, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? He lays it out here. He's not just saying, hey, we wouldn't have this if God didn't make it. He's also saying, you can't enjoy any of this rightly apart from him. That it's only through God we get to have true enjoyment. Verse 26, for to the one who pleases God has given him wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The only way that we can please God, right, to be the one who pleases Him, is not through works, but it is through faith. So it is those who put their faith in God and His revealed Son, Jesus Christ, they can have true wisdom, knowledge, and joy. And He means that by those, by your faith in God, then you can truly find the good life. But the person who does not have faith won't find the good life. They're only going to get the business of gathering and collecting. They can just chase all the world's gifts, put them up in a nice pile, and then they're going to die and it's going to go away and that's it. And whatever they'll find, they're only going to give it to the one who pleases God, which just means it's going to go back to God. All the possessions that unbelievers or all of us are so proud of, they're going to, be, they're going to end up in the hand of God on that last day when He returns, and He'll do what He wants with them. Because apart from life, apart from Jesus, life is just vanity and a vanity and a striving after wind. You can't trap the wind in your hand any more than you can find life for the good life outside of Jesus. It can only be found in Christ. And ultimately, I think what Solomon is doing here is he's calling for us as Christians to have a gospel-fueled enjoyment of life. That the gospel should inform how we participate in eating and, and drinking and in our work. And it doesn't just mean, hey, pray before you eat. And now that's a Christian 
Now it's good. It's, this is a Christian meal now. We've did it. We, we prayed for a second. Good job. Now that act alone doesn't make something Christian. It's, it's No, what should be Christian is before and in the middle and after the meal what we do. That, and what does this kind of mean? Well, let me give you some ideas of what I'm thinking about. Part of what I think this means is that everything that is good in the world points to the beauty and the wonder of our God. And so when we participate in it, when, when we see it, when you bite into an incredible burger, right, or when you get a perfectly cooked fried peach from Johnny's, you get a foretaste of heaven and what it should be. The goodness of God is getting sensed by your tongue and your stomach and your taste buds. That, that food and drink and word, they should reflect the beauty of God like the mountains of Montana or the Pacific Ocean or tropical islands or a beautiful piece of music like Mozart or whatever other kind of piece of music you like. And we, we should gaze, gaze at these. We should eat and we should taste in it. We should participate in it and we should see God's beauty. And it should lead us to worship Jesus. And when you do that, then it becomes meaningful. But when you just try to hold on to it, the taste fades and it doesn't last. But I also think this means that the pain of the world should also point us to Jesus. That the fleetingness of pleasure here, or the pain, it should make us long for Christ to come back and to fix the world. That it's right and good to, to weep at every funeral we go to because we are praying and longing for Jesus to come back and bring the resurrection of the dead. That the suffering and the trials of life remind us that our world has been shattered and broken by sin and we need a Redeemer to come and to make it right because the world is not good. And it needs to be fixed. And with Jesus, we can look honestly at the reality of life and the vanity of it and the meaninglessness and the vaporousness of it like Solomon. And we can do that without falling into nihilism and despair. And instead, we can fall into lament and begging Jesus to come back and longing for him. Instead of falling into despair, we can fall into the arms of Jesus. Christians, right, we believe that Jesus, he died on the cross to redeem us from our sins. And our world and our lives, they're, they're dead and broken. And we can't fix ourselves and we need him to save us. We believe that life with Jesus is where the good life is found. Look, if you haven't embraced Jesus, life just isn't going to work. And my sermon really isn't going to help you very much. You know, this isn't meant to just be, hey, here's some self-help tips so you can make your life a little less miserable. Um, the sermon is really not going to apply and help you at all unless you repent of your sins and give your life to Jesus. I'm not after, and we're not after, trying to just get a heightened spiritual consciousness. Our faith ultimately can only come through the Savior of the cross. It comes from being born again. And being born again, it doesn't just mean Jesus saved us from our sins and now we're going to die and go to heaven. Woohoo, that's it. Now let's just wait around until that happens. No, his death on the cross, it actually was about bringing about the redemption of all of creation. We read part of this in our call to worship in Ephesians 1, verse 10. For Jesus had a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, the things in heaven and the things on earth. Colossians 1.20 as well makes it more explicit. For through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What does this mean? It means that Jesus redeems the gifts as they were meant to be enjoyed. The part of being 
part of being born again means that now we can find enjoyment truly in the giver and not just in the things. Instead of turning these gifts into idols and trying to find our good life here, we can use these as fuels for our worship of our God and our Savior. That every act can be an act of gospel-informed worship. Every day at work, every meal, every drink, it's a small moment of Christ's reconciliation on the cross that's only made possible by the blood of Jesus. Until one day He comes again and brings the fullness of time and everything is made right. And every tear is wiped away and all sickness and death is gone and cast away forever. And every sad thing comes untrue. And in conclusion, where have we, we've been here? We've found a bunch of places I think the good life can't be. Can't be found in hedonism, can't be found in materialism, productivity, or vague spirituality. It can only be found in Jesus. And that's it. Uh, I want to close by sharing again just a piece of a bit of my testimony on how we came to faith in Jesus. Um, some of you have heard this before, but, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. I'm a pastor's kid, but I never really embraced Jesus, okay? I believed Jesus was dying on the cross for my sins just like the sky is blue, but okay, that, mean, that doesn't really mean anything to me. It's a, it's a fact that I'll, I'll check off and write down so I can get a treat, you know, in Sunday school. And I, but I, I really thought the good life was somewhere else, and honestly, I was just in a lot of pain and suffering. Um, I, I was sexually abused as, as a child by an older male cousin, and it just really left me totally broken. Um, I put up walls to keep people out, to try and keep me safe. And I said, I don't want to get hurt, and part of that included, I'm going to put up walls to keep God out. I'll believe in you up here, but I ain't going to give you this. I'm going to keep this for me. Led to a lot of depression, and it led to a lot of suicidal thoughts. Kind of finally got to, I was self-harming, got to a place where I just started to come up with a plan and thinking, you know, life is just, like Solomon said, it's vanity, vaporous, meaningless. I don't think I want to be here anymore. So I started trying to come up with a plan because I didn't want to be alive anymore, but I thought, you know what, let me try one more thing. Maybe before I give up and figure this all out and, and die, I, I think I'm going to give Jesus a shot. Because what do I got to lose? I'll give him my heart. We'll see what happens. I'll take down my walls. I'll let him in. Because you know what? If that doesn't work, I can always kill myself after anyway. It's already my plan. So, well, do one more thing. So I decided to, to give up, to quit trying, quit trying to find the good life somewhere else and just give my life to Jesus. See what he could do. That's what I did. And that's why I'm still alive today. And why I'm here. So Jesus took away all my pain and that life is easy. I still got trauma. There's still parts of me that are messed up where he can tell you about that I haven't quite figured out. But I found where the good life is. It's only in the person of Jesus. It's the only place that can make life work. Nothing else will last. Friends, if that's, if that's you, if you're depressed, if you're struggling... And if you're not sure you want to be alive, come talk to me. I've been there. I'm there. I've been there before. But don't just come to me. Go to Jesus. He knows. He can handle it. And following Jesus is worth it. It's the only place that you can find the good life. It's the only place that I found. I'm going to close this in prayer. Invite our worship team to come up.
Lord, I, I, I praise you. Lord, thank you for saving me. Lord, not just eternally, but thank you for saving my life here. Lord, I pray that all of us in this room would, would find the good life in you, Jesus. That we wouldn't try to chase it and the shiny things that distract us, the things inside our own hearts that we think maybe that'll work, maybe if I could just get this or be this or, or find this, or, that'll, that'll fix it all. Lord Jesus, only you can. Forgive us even as Christians who forget that and chase other things instead of you. Lord, you are the only place that the good life can be found. Would you help us to find it in you? Because we can't even do that without you. We pray and we ask these things in your holy, precious, most beautiful name, Jesus. Amen. Why don't you stand as we worship our Savior one more time through song. Don't listen to what other voices would tell you or your own voice, or the voice of the enemy whispering in your ear. Listen to what God says about you. You are loved and you have infinite worth and value because you are made in the image of God. Hear this benediction from the God who loves you from Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God bless you. Go in peace.